Well, welcome back to the Parsha Podcast from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This is your old pal, Yaakov Walby. And today, before we begin our very unique and interesting Parsha Podcast, I have a unique and interesting and unusual request. Long-time listeners know that we have a different fundraising attitude than most. We like to ask for your support. Once a year, we have our big fundraiser during the first quarter of the year, and we work really hard to make sure that everyone gives at least once a year. So this is a good time to remind you, if you have yet to give in 2022, visit our website, torchweb.org. And make a donation. Make sure that you are a supporter of our work in 2022. We, of course, asked only once a year, but we will never turn you away. If you want to give more, the real heroes are the ones who give big and give repeatedly over the course of the year. But we deeply appreciate all of your love and support. But we do this one annual fundraiser, and we work really hard on that campaign And we try to cover the bulk of our annual expenses in this one fundraiser. And it's a matching fundraiser. Every donation is doubled or tripled or quadrupled. Every year we do it a little bit differently. We do it typically in, in February or March. But I found that we have a very unusual problem. So this past month, the month of November... We had, thank God, the most downloads of our podcasts of any month since we began podcasting here at Torch in December of 2012. We really have been at this for a while. I was talking with my wife recently, and she said, do you really see yourself doing this long term? Can you imagine yourself when you're 70 and you're still recording Parsha podcasts and all the other podcasts? So I told her, I said, well, Paul Harvey, the legend, he was doing it till his 90s. The spoken word, it improves like fine wine. As you get older, you get better at it. So I'm, I'm planning to do this, please God, with the help of the Almighty for the long term. But we had a massive month, November of 20. 22. But when it comes to fundraising, it's kind of hard to convey that to our donors. You know, I was thinking if we put all the listeners from November 2022 in the same room, we could fill stadiums. It would be very impressive. And then we could approach our donors, our potential donors, and showcase our work. But we have this uncommon situation where everyone kind of listens on their own, in their car, on the treadmill on their bike by themselves or with some other people. So our audience is not coalesced into one stadium. It's kind of distributed throughout the country and throughout the world. So it raises a unique problem. How do we convey the power, the impact of the podcasts to the people who don't listen? And how do we convey to them that this initiative and our organization, it's really worthy of their support? Now, of course, you know, that here at the Torch Center, it's not the only thing that we do. You take a little stroll on the website, torchweb.org, and you see all the other things going on in the Torch Center, in our 
community and our Shul Torchwood and all the other amazing podcasts. There are a lot of things going on over here. But of course, you know that my favorite part of this entire enterprise is the podcast. And it's hard to convey the impact of what we do here to someone who's not part of our little family. You know, we get together every week and we sit by the cackling fire with some hot chocolate and a cozy blanket and we study the parasha together every week. But some people, could you imagine, there are people in the world who have no idea what's going on. They don't know what's going on with this torch center, with the rabbi wall being his microphones in his studio. I see him through the window gesticulating wildly, but what's going on? I know that people enjoy, people learn, people grow and advance in their Judaism. And I'm trying to think of some way to convey that to people so that way we can make a pitch to get the support of those people who are not part of our little family. So I had an interesting idea, and this is the unusual request that I have at the beginning of the show. Can you send me a short clip, either an, an audio clip or a video clip, talking about how the podcasts from Torch have impacted your life and your Judaism and your relationship with the Almighty, a short message, a minute or two, just to talk about how it impacted your life. And I want to put together like an, an audio and visual testimonial of sorts so that we can use it to showcase what we do. So send me a voice note. Send it to me on WhatsApp. Email it to me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Of course, send me all your other questions and comments, but help support the great work of Torch as we finish, as we wrap up with 2022 and march onward with the help of the Almighty into 2023. These weeks, we're reading about the founding of our people. Of course, there are a lot of stories that are told in Genesis, but the main emphasis of the book is the focus on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we scrutinize their life, and we learn from their every step, and we study their every move, and we examine their relationships and their travails and their deeds and their words. And Rashi tells us in the beginning of Neshri's parsha, at the end of our parsha, we read about the family of Asaph, and it runs through all the generations very quickly. And Rashi compares it to a person sifting through sand. He's trying to find the gem. And he has to go through all the sand and all the pebbles and finding the diamond. Once he finds a diamond, he can discard the pebbles. Similarly, we talk about Esau and his whole family, but really we're trying to get to the story of Jacob. And once we get to the story of Jacob, the family of Jacob, we can focus on what is really important. That's the story of Genesis. It goes into considerable detail, telling us all about the forefathers and all about their families and all about their accomplishments and all about their challenges. And it goes into considerable detail, even when it's talking about the tangential characters in the story of the patriarchs. So, for example, Parshas Chayesara, it tells us about how Abraham instructs his servant, Eliezer, to go find a wife for Isaac. 
And chapter 24, we read all the details of the story. He goes with the camels, and he meets Rebecca, and she offers water for him and his camels. And then it repeats it once Eliezer has an audience with Rebecca's family. And Rashi chapter 24, verse 42 tells us, The words of the servants of the forefathers are more cherished by God more than the Torah of the forefathers' descendants. The story of the forefathers is so important, so critical, even the supporting cast of the patriarchs, it's so critical for us to examine. In this podcast, I want to focus on the supporting actors. Maybe we could call them the antagonists in the story of the forefathers, and they are the four uncles. We have four uncles whose story is told in considerable depth in Genesis. And of course, we're reading about the narratives of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. But along the way, we encounter their siblings, the uncles of the Jewish people. And the Torah does expend significant real estate talking about these four uncles. And the word uncle is such a funny word, such a clever word. And the idea of a forefather and a four uncle, you know, I just, I just can't resist. So who are these four uncles? We have Lot or Lot, the brother of Sarah. And then we have Ishmael, the brother of Isaac. And then we have Laban, the brother of Rebekah. And then we have Asaph, the brother of Jacob. These four uncles spend a lot of time with the protagonists of the story. There's got to be something about their story that is so significant that we have to spend a lot of time talking about it. What can we discover from the story of the four uncles? What are the avuncular lessons that we can deduce? Let's see what we find. So, of course, uncle number one is Lot, the brother of Sarah. He's the nephew of Abraham. He's Abraham's brother, Haran's son. And he's traveling with Abraham, and they descend together down to Egypt. And when Abraham claims Sarah to be a sister, Lot is quiet. And when Abraham is enriched, when he's released from Egypt, Lot is also made wealthy. And then there are scuffles between the camps of Abraham and Lot, and Abraham gives him an ultimatum. You go right, and I'll go left. You go left, and I go right. And Lot makes the unfortunate decision to go to Sodom. And he gets taken captive in the world war of Genesis chapter 14. And Abraham is mobilized into action to go save him. And he goes back to Sodom. And then when the time for Sodom to be overturned arrives, he welcomes the angels who come to destroy it into his home. And he baits for the matzah. And then when the mob congregates around his house, he offers his two daughters, take my daughters, but don't touch my guests. And then they urge him to leave, and he leaves with his wife and two daughters. His wife turns around, and she gets converted into a pillar of salt. And ultimately, he ends up in a cave with his two daughters, and he inebriatedly impregnates his daughters, spawning the forebears of the nations of Ammon and Moab, two 
nations who are barred from intermarrying amongst the Jewish people. So in the book of Genesis, Lot commands a serious amount of attention. And he's also going to be the forbearer, the father of nations that wrangle with the Jewish people with the descendants of Abraham. So we have Abraham, the forefather, and Lot, the foruncle, and they're in conflict, and their stories are intertwined until they get separated. That is uncle number one. And uncle number two is Ishmael. He's the brother or the half-brother of Isaac. When Sarah is barren, she arranges that her maidservant Hagar will marry Abraham. And from that union, Ishmael is born. And at age 13, he is circumcised. And a year later, his younger half-brother Isaac is born. And when Isaac is weaned, Ishmael starts causing trouble. He is acting inappropriately. The verse says that he's joking. He's not serious. He is acting in an infantile fashion. He's playing. He's making sport. And Sarah wants him out. Rashi says, what was he doing? Rashi offers three opinions. Either he was doing idolatry or various sexual crimes, or he was trying to murder Isaac. Now, Abraham has some reservations about banishing Ishmael, but ultimately, the Almighty tells him to listen to what Sarah is saying, and Ishmael is banished together with his mother. And due to Sarah's displeasure with him, Ishmael is struck with an illness, and he rapidly depletes the water that Abraham provided them for their journey. And Ishmael is on the ropes, he's on the verge of dying, and Hagar places him a few bow shots away, and she prays. And he prays, and the angel shows her the well in the desert, and he is rejuvenated. They travel to Egypt. He becomes an archer. He marries an Egyptian woman. And he makes another reappearance later on. The Midrash actually tells us that Abraham did not give up on Ishmael, and in fact went down to Egypt to visit him. But we discover later on in the story how Ishmael repented, And he was once again welcomed back into Abraham's camp. And when Abraham went to the binding of Isaac, together with him was Ishmael. And when Abraham ultimately passed, Ishmael was present and he, in deference to Isaac's spiritual superiority, he allowed him to go first in the burial procession of Abraham. And that shows us that he, in fact, repented. So we have uncle number one, that's Lot, for uncle number one. And for uncle number two is Ishmael. He makes repeated appearances in the stories of the forefathers. And like Lot, like Lot, he fathers a nation that will have repeated run-ins with our nation over the course of the millennia and continues to do so as we speak. So again, we see a forefather and a four-uncle at odds, not just at the beginning, but in a continuous fashion going forward. Four-uncle number three is Laban, the brother of Rebecca. He is Rebecca's brother, but he's also the father of Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah. And according to the Midrash, he's also the father of Bilah and Zilpah, the concubines of Jacob, the two 
wives of Jacob were Laban's daughters from his wife, and the two concubines were Laban's daughters from his concubines. So he's the uncle of the Jewish people, but he's also the father-in-law of the Jewish people, and he too seems to be an ever-present fixture in Genesis. When Abraham sends his trusty servant Eliezer to find a wife for Isaac, he instructs him to go to his family and to secure a wife, and we know the story. Rebecca offers water for the camels without being prompted to do so. She displays uncommon kindness and generosity, and she's worthy of joining the dynasty of kindness of Abraham. And Eliezer gives her some jewelry, and she runs to show her family, and then we meet Laban. 24-29 of Genesis. Laban ran. He ran outside to go meet this visitor. And Rashi tells us on said verse, why did he run? For what purpose is Laban sprinting outside to meet Eliezer? He saw the jewelry and he said, wow, this man must be really rich. Maybe we could go separate the man from his wealth. So we find out that Laban has some poor qualities. He has a rapacious lust for money. He has avarice. He is the greedy uncle. But then he runs to Eliezer and he welcomes him in and he clears the house out from idolatry. And finally, after some negotiations and some hesitations and some cold feet, Laban signs off on sending Rebecca, not before giving her the iconic blessing that we still today extend to brides, our sister, may you become into thousands and myriads. But of course, that's not the last that we hear of Laban. The whole Parsha last week was dedicated to Jacob navigating the minefield laid out before him by Laban. Again and again, Laban is tricking Jacob. Worked for seven years for Rachel. Oh, no, sorry. Bait and switch. Now you have Leah. Give me another seven years. Incredible dishonesty when it comes to finances. And then once the 14 years were over, They have a work-for-pay arrangement, which Laban changes a hundred times. And eventually, Jacob is able to shake himself free of Laban and abscond from there with his family and his possessions. Jacob survives the minefield of Laban, and he begins this week's parasha by signaling to Esau that despite living in Laban's proximity for 20 years, he maintained his standing. Now, interestingly, even though this is the last that we hear from Laban in the Torah, like Lot and Ishmael, Laban's descendants also interact with our people. As they just tell us that Bilaam, the conniving Gentile prophet, that seeks to curse the Jewish people in the book of Numbers, he's either a relative of Laban or he's some sort of emanation of Laban. So just as our foruncle Laban sparred with our forefather Jacob, Laban kind of continued to do so with those that came after him. And finally, we have the fourth uncle, and that's Asaph, the brother of Jacob. This is the twin of Jacob, he's the ruddy one. 
and once they and once these two brothers mature, they go in very different directions. Jacob is a man of the tents. He is honest. His heart is like his mouth. There's no dissonance between what he actually is inside and how he presents himself. He is wholesome. Whereas Asav is the man of the fields. He's deceptive. He has a penchant for violence. And there's a theme that we see that Jacob, he seizes that that Asav should have had. He takes his birthright. He takes his blessings. Really, the wife that was destined to marry Asav, Jacob takes that as well. I should just tell us that Leah was destined to marry Asav and Jacob was supposed to marry Rachel, but Jacob ends up with both. This is a theme that our sages tell us that there were really supposed to be four forefathers. It was supposed to be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And Jacob and Esau were each supposed to be the father of six of the 12 tribes. And the plan was for Jacob and Esau to work symbiotically with Jacob using his tent-dwelling skills to advance the cause of the nation. And he was supposed to work in tandem with Esau manning the fields. That was the plan. But Esau chose a different path. And he fell off the Mount Rushmore of forefathers. But what happened to that fourth spot? That fourth spot, Esau's spot, was actually taken by Jacob. He fulfilled both roles. That's why he has two names. There's Jacob and then there's Israel. And the commentators calculate that the gematria for the word Israel, 541, matches the gematrias of the words Jacob and Satan. So Israel is, is Jacob plus Satan, meaning that with the persona, with the alter ego of Israel, Jacob was able to embody the good version of Asaph. To become Israel, he had to kind of marry the forces of Jacob with the Satan and thereby overcoming the evil, but maintaining that, that edge, so to speak. And that is what Israel is. That's the fourth forefather, the good version of Asaph. Originally, it was supposed to be four forefathers. Jacob and Asaph were going to split that last role, but ultimately, Jacob ends up as the sole progenitor of all 12 tribes. And what happens to Asaph? Asaph is downgraded from a forefather into a foruncle. Jacob takes his birthright, takes his blessings, literally dons his clothing, takes his wife and all of his responsibilities. And Jacob ends up with the responsibility of managing his two forefather identities, and he does so masterfully. And Asaph is demoted to being Jacob's sparring mate. And he plots to kill him, and he sends Eliphaz to kill him, and he mobilizes 400 men in Arparsha to kill him. But Jacob outmaneuvers him and endures. 
So if you think about it, we have four forefathers. We have Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel. And their storylines are told in the Torah. But the narratives of the four forefathers are intertwined with the stories of the four uncles, the four foils, the four uncles who interacted with these four forefathers. And the Torah emphasizes the story of these uncles. Now, there are there are other biological uncles that we know nothing about. So, for example, we know the Torah tells us that Laban had some other sons besides for his daughters. And we don't even know their names. The Torah doesn't tell us anything about them. Yet, by contrast, the Torah does invest considerable time and emphasis on these four, Lot, Ishmael, Esav, and Laban. I call them not the four fathers, the four uncles. Why? What is so significant about these four, Lot, Ishmael, Laban, and Esav? What is the common thread, or is there a common thread amongst their storylines? I'm going to suggest in this podcast that the answer is yes. And they all play a very important role in the development of the forefathers and consequently in the building blocks of our nation. So first of all, we see that the similarities between these four uncles run quite deep. All the forefathers had dramatic departures with their respective or from their respective four uncles. So Abraham, he was matched with Lot. And he gives him an ultimatum, go right and I'll go left, go left and I'll go right. We must depart from each other. And then we have Ishmael. Ishmael was a bad influence on Isaac and he is banished. He's sent away. And Jacob, of course, absconded from Laban, last week's Parsha. And Jacob, after he's renamed Israel, this week's Parsha, after Esau tries to provide an overture of peace and union, Jacob, called Israel, of course, at that time, he skillfully and deftly rejects those overtures and he separates himself from Esau. So what is the significance of these four uncles? I call them four uncles. It's one word. I made up that word. Even in my Google Docs, it kept giving me those squiggly red lines under the word four uncles. They don't know, they don't know what it means. So I, I clicked, I right clicked. And I said, add this to my personal dictionary. This is a new word. We made it up here on the Parsha podcast. And you're learning it right now from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. There's something called a four uncle. What does that mean? Here's the approach I want to suggest. The forefathers, well, they're, they're the building blocks of the Jewish people. And they're laying down the foundation of a nation that will endure forever. This is the nation that's going to stand at the foot of Sinai and hear prophecy, and they're going to be commanded by the Almighty via Moshe to uphold his Torah and to bring his name to the world. This is not an ordinary nation. We're going to be the nation that will serve the role of being God's emissaries and representatives in the world. We're going to be responsible with 
learning the Almighty's Torah, assimilating it into our bones, and living a higher a higher level of of humanity. People inspired and informed by the Word of God, and thereby inspiring all of God's creations and elevating the entire world and finishing the grand ambitions that Abraham had to ultimately reverse the sin of Adam and usher the world towards its utopian perfection. Who founded this nation? What kind of people can construct such a nation? They have to be absolute titans. They have to be the most remarkable people to ever grace this planet. They have to be people who themselves embody the rectified world that they seek to build. That's what it means to be a forefather. And the way the forefathers were themselves chiseled, hewn into the greatest people that ever walked the planet is via tests. A test is a device that can elevate a person with 10 tests, Abraham managed to catapult himself to a level really resembling Adam before his sin. Isaac was tested repeatedly. Jacob was tested repeatedly. Israel was tested. Each test provided a degree of elevation. The Midrash points out that the word in Hebrew for a test is nisayon, and it shares the same Hebraic root as the word Ness, which means to be elevated, to be uplifted, to be brandished up high. The story of Genesis is the story of the foundation of our people. And it's really the story of the forefathers. They were tested repeatedly. But how were they tested? What is the nature of a test constructed for a forefather? Part of the test, we want to suggest, part of the tests of the forefathers was that they had to interact with and be in the proximity of their respective foruncles. And the way that the forefathers navigated these relationships, that provides us with a masterclass in how to deal with this type of test and thereby how to be elevated ourselves. So let's examine this a bit closer. When we study the story of the four uncles, we find a remarkable pattern. All of these four four uncles have immense, admirable qualities. They all have aspects of their life that are worthy of admiration, that are redeeming but they all have flaws as well. And there's something wrong with all of them. And more specifically, each respective four uncle has a flaw that overlaps with the most sterling quality of their respective forefather. Now let me repeat that. It's a little, a little wordy. The flaw in each of these four uncle Foruncles, foruntuli. How would you say that? The, the plural of of foruncle, foruncai. 
I don't know. Each of these four uncles, their flaw was tailored to serve as a foil, to serve as, as resistance to the specific quality that each of the forefather was bringing to the table. The Almighty tested the forefathers. One of the tests was that the forefather had to be in close proximity, in a close relationship with a foruncle designed to serve as a stress test for the supreme quality of the forefather. And the test was, can the forefather navigate this tricky relationship without having the influence of the respective foruncle diminish the outstanding quality of the forefather. These four uncles are villains, but they're not the, the typical kind of villain that we think of. They're not totally evil, totally corrupt. Their danger is actually way worse because it's very easy to reject someone who's totally evil. Their danger was that they weren't totally evil. They had a lot of qualities. But they were able to influence the forefathers in subtle and insidious ways. They had the ability to to chip away at their qualities in a slow, call it imperceptible way. Until the forefather would no longer harbor his exemplary quality. And this is a test, or this is one of the tests given to the forefathers. And as we shall see, they all succeeded in avoiding the harmful influences of their respective foruncles, and thereby became worthy of building the nation in a glorious fashion. Let's go through the four foruncles one by one. So we know Abraham's primary quality is chesed, kindness, hospitality. Abraham displays otherworldly kindness. And this is what he's going to contribute, one of the things that he's going to contribute to our nation. That's the forefather. That's Abraham. But Lot, Lot, his foruncle, he is a test for Abraham, to try to destabilize Abraham's kindness. Now, as we mentioned, Lot has some incredible qualities. Sarsidus praise him for being quiet when he could have busted Abraham and Sarah and say, well, no, they're actually married. We see that he has faith and even knows that when it's Passover, when it's Pesach, he baked the matzahs, and he also displays kindness. He acts with superlative kindness when the angels come to overturn Sodom. But there's something off in the kindness of Lot. So first of all, we see that he behaves in such an inappropriate fashion when he offers his daughters to the mob. That's not appropriate kindness. Moreover, it doesn't spill over to his wife. She bristles at his Kindness. She's upset that he's even serving salt to the guests. It also does not translate to his descendants. The nations of Ammon and Moab, they come from him. They display 
an embarrassing lack of kindness and hospitality. And finally, our sages tell us that Lot had a weakness for sexual crimes. Our sages tell us, the Midrash tells us that the reason why Lot chose to move to Sodom and Gomorrah is because he craved the illicit licentiousness and promiscuity of those lands. Now, in Scripture, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17, the Torah has a very unusual term for a certain sexual crime. It calls it chesed, kindness. There is a corrupt kindness, and that's what Lot represented. And we see, by the way, that uh, at the end, he ended up with his daughters because of his corrupt chesed, his corrupt kindness. This is for uncle number one. He has positive qualities. He's not the standard, paradigmatic villain. This is not Haman. This is not Nebuchadnezzar. This is Lot. He's a foruncle. He has kindness, but there's something wrong with his kindness. And the Almighty places him with Abraham as a test to see if Abraham's kindness is going to be influenced and damaged and dinged by Lot. And when Abraham manages to successfully divest himself of Lot, without his kindness being damaged, Abraham passes the test. The forefather defeats the foruncle. And this pattern remains true when we look at Isaac and Ishmael. Like Lot, Ishmael also displays some wonderful qualities. He's not this brutish villain bereft of any redeeming quality. He was trained by Abraham in the ways of kindness. Kindness was not Ishmael's flaw. He also excelled in prayer. We see that his prayer was answered when he was on the brink of dying. He also had self-sacrifice. When he was 13, he could have said to Abraham, no, you're not going to touch me with that sharp scalpel. I'm not going to allow you to circumcise me. But he was willing to do it. Ishmael had some wonderful qualities. But he's not a forefather. He's a foruncle. He was in Isaac's proximity. And that served, or could have served, as a way to harm Isaac and to damage Isaac. That was the conflict, the clash of the forefather and the foruncle. Now, how exactly did Ishmael try to corrupt Isaac? We know Isaac is the most mysterious of all the forefathers. His story is not so fleshed out in the Torah the way the other forefathers are. Of course, that's by design. So it's hard for us to appreciate what Isaac really stood for. So it might be a little bit difficult for us to try to identify how his foruncle tried to damage him. But the answer is actually readily apparent to us when Ishmael is banished. Sarah wants Ishmael banished 
Why? Because she saw him laughing. This is in chapter 21, verse 9. And as you mentioned earlier, laughing, what does that mean? Rashi gives us three interpretations, either idolatry, adultery, or murder. Now, what's really interesting about this is that the very first thing that we know about Isaac is that even before he was born, God predetermined his name is going to be Yitzchak, Isaac. The word Yitzchak means laughter. More precisely, it means will laugh. And the word that describes the crime of Ishmael that demanded that he be separated from Isaac is he was mitzachet. So Yitzchak, mitzachet, it's the same it's the same word. Now, what exactly does this mean? And what's the attribute of Isaac? We know Isaac was, was very serious. And the word Yitzchak means will laugh. So it's been suggested, this is a, a much broader subject, but it's been suggested that Isaac represents a certain seriousness in his relationship with the Almighty. But Yitzchak, he will in the future laugh. Ishmael is mitzachet. It's a, it's a version of that, just like, you know, Lot had kindness, but it wasn't quite the kindness of Abraham. Ishmael has this quality of, of mitzachet, but it's a corrupt version. It's something which is not worthy of giving him a laudatory name. It's not the name of Yitzchak that was given to him by God. This, I say to say, is, is it idolatry? Does it have some stench of idolatry to it? Is it murder? Is it some of the other horrific crimes? In this lies the conflict between this forefather and his corresponding foruncle. And again, the forefather triumphs and Ishmael is banished. Now, Jacob had two identities and he serves as two forefathers. He's Jacob and he is Israel. And the qualities that Jacob displays are about MS, which means truth, honesty, integrity, being upstanding, being righteous to the core. When he grew up as a young adult, he is described as an ishtam, a wholesome person. The verse tells us 25, 27, these two twins grew up and Asaph was a man who knew how to trap. He was a man of the field. Yaakov ishtam, Jacob, is an honest man, is a wholesome man who sits, who dwells in the tents. And Rashi tells us, what does it mean that Esav was a trapping man? He would trap, he would ensnare his father with sanctimonious questions. He would present himself in a deceptive way. He would go over to Isaac and say, well, we need a tithe, right? But how do you tithe hay? How do you tithe salt? And his father says, wow, what a righteous kid. Look at Asaph. He's so concerned about the mitzvahs. He wants to know how to tithe salt and hay. And of course, Asaph was, was really corrupt. But he portrayed himself in a different way. That's what Asaph stands for. Jacob is a ishtam, is a wholesome person. He's not an expert in all this deception. Piv, the way he is in his heart internally, that's exactly how he portrays himself with his mouth. He doesn't use his sharp skills to try to be deceitful. 
And Esav continues with his deceptive ways. We read, and Parshas told us, how he got married at the age of 40. Why? Well, Isaac, my father, he got married at the age of 40. I'm just like Isaac. That's how Esav sold himself. And Rashi tells us that he's like he's like a pig. The pig, it spreads its feet out. Look at me, I'm kosher. That's Esav. Not kosher, not righteous, but falsely portraying himself as if he were. Jacob is honest. He's a straight shooter. He is full of integrity. But Esav is deceptive. He's a trickster. Jacob is real. Esav is fake. Now, like the other four uncles, Esav also has redeeming qualities. We know he's the paragon of honoring his father. And at least on a theoretical level, we know that he was quite knowledgeable. He knew how to ask those sanctimonious questions. But it wasn't real. It was disingenuine. Our status tell us that Asaph had an unusual burial arrangement. We talked about this in the past. He tried to stop the burial of Jacob. He tried to not allow, to disallow Jacob's body to be interred in that cave that we talked about. And he was decapitated by Chushim, the deaf son of Jacob's son, Dan. And then his head, now severed from his body, his head rolled into the cave. His body was buried elsewhere. And the commentaries tell us, my grandfather used to always say this point, who was buried in the cave? Only the forefathers. Asaph, if you just look at his head, if you're able to remove it from his body, he was indistinguishable from the other people there. In his head, if you just looked at what he knew in his head, on a conceptual abstract level, he was indistinguishable from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The problem with Asaph is that it did not migrate downward. He's dishonest. He's disingenuine. How do we tithe salt and hay? And he's mimicking his father. Oh, I want to get married at 40 as well. His head, his ideals, his ideology, his theoretical way of living, it's not connected to how he behaves. Jacob, the forefather, was in close proximity with this for uncle, Jacob, you're so truthful. You're so wholesome. I'm going to force you to be with someone who's so deceptive. Can you maintain your integrity? Will the forefather overcome the foruncle? Now, because Jacob adopted a second persona as the fourth patriarch, he had another foruncle to have to navigate. And like Esav, Laban also displays a certain degree of lack of integrity. He's always cheating, conniving. He's a chicanerous crook, as we call him. But in a slightly different way than Esav. Esav was dishonest in his character. He wanted acceptance. He wanted recognition. He wanted to be prized by his father. 
He wanted status and stature. Laban's dishonesty was manifested in monetary ways. Of course, like the other four uncles, Laban also had admirable qualities. He cleaned out the house from idolatry. He's invoking the name of God repeatedly in chapter 24 of Genesis. He acknowledges God's intervention in the arrangement of Isaac and Rebekah. It came from Hashem. But he displays again and again a rapacious lust for money. Why did he run towards Eliezer? Well, he thought, maybe I could siphon off some of this guy's jewelry. Maybe I could steal, borrow, we call it borrow. Maybe I can appropriate some of his valuables. When he met Jacob in last week's parasha, this is an incredible rush. This is in chapter 29, verse 13. After Jacob comes and he rolls off the stone from the well, Laban hears, oh no, who's here? Jacob, my long-lost nephew. He runs again and he hugs him and he kisses him. Look at this Rashi. Rashi says, why is he running? Again, he's running because he thought that Jacob has tons of money. He remembers the last time that one of Abraham's representatives came Ten camels laden with all kinds of goodies. Oh, there's another one here. Can we maybe separate the man from his money? And he sees Jacob, and Jacob is just by himself. Where where are the camels? Where's the whole posse? Where's the whole gang? Why is this incongruent with the last time I met one of these family members? So he said, you know what? Maybe he's hiding the gold underneath his coat. So he went to hug him and he's patting him down, feeling him everywhere. Maybe he, he's hiding the money here or there. And then when he, when he turns up with nothing, he starts kissing him. Or maybe he's hiding it in his mouth. So he's kissing him to find where's all the money. That's what Rashi tells us about Laban. Now we know the story. Jacob did come with valuables, but he was mugged along the way, by Eliphaz, Esav's son. So he was empty-handed. And that's one of the reasons why Rashi tells us why he cried when he met Rachel. But the flaw that we discover in this, the fourth foruncle with Laban, is that he had an insatiable lust for money. And by the way, Bilam, who came from Laban, was the same. He said, well, i got to fill up my whole house with gold and silver for my services. So this too is going to serve as a foil or a potential foil for Jacob. Jacob is exquisitely honest in all his ways. And we see that when, when Laban combed through Jacob's camp at the end of last year's parish, he did not find a single thing that belonged to him. Jacob understood that everything came from Hashem, everything that you need the money will give you. Everything that you don't have, it's because you don't need it. And when Jacob meets Esau in our parasha, he tells him, I have everything. It's more than having a lot. Everything means everything I need, I have. Everything I don't need, I don't have. And everything I have, it must be that I need it. Which is why when he left a few small jugs on the other side of the river, he endangered himself to go get them. And we see how Jacob navigates these interactions, despite being in close confines with two four uncles, 
Jacob's scintillating qualities were undamaged. Again, the forefather, or in Jacob and Israel's cases, the forefathers triumphed over the foruncles. Now, this pattern is manifested in other ways as well. Just as the forefathers are going to be confronted, of course, by divine orchestration with four uncles who are engineered to try to detract from their sterling qualities, the forefathers are also going to be tested in other ways. They're going to be placed in situations that test the strength of their qualities. So Abraham, he's the paragon of kindness. He is asked to act in a decidedly unkind fashion when Hashem, when the Almighty, asks him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Isaac is Yitzchak. He is someone who lives with a certain seriousness. He is called sometimes the dread of Isaac. Maybe he will laugh in the future, but now he operates with with steely, stolid seriousness. Yet he is dogged by claims of the jokesters of the generation. They claim that his true father is really Avimelech. See Rashi to the first verse of Toldos. Jacob is instructed, is commanded by his mother to act in a very dishonest way. Go impersonate your brother. Go skirt to the very edge of falsehood and dishonesty. So the forefathers are repeatedly confronted by people and by circumstances that threaten to destabilize their positive qualities. And it is through these tests, through overcoming the challenges of their respective foruncles, it's through this that they cement their greatness and become the building blocks of the Jewish nation. The roots of our people are very strong and very secure. They're unshakable. When Bilaam, said Bilaam, tries to curse the Jewish people, he says, I'm looking at their roots and there's no vulnerabilities. I see no place to, to grip them to try to damage them. Why? Why are the roots so strong? Because all of them were tested. All of them were exposed to situations and elements and people that could have damaged their qualities. And all of them overcame them. What's the lesson here for us? What are the avuncular lessons, as I like to call it? The British tells us that we are responsible to try to emulate our forefathers. Every man and woman and child and individual from our nation must say, must yearn to have their deeds match the deeds of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are mandated to try to emulate our forefathers. And just like they did, each one knew their respective quality. And of course, we have a lot of qualities, but we have one quality that towers above them all. And to develop that and to refine that greatness that we're destined to achieve, to discover our qualities, but also to protect them. Protect our qualities with tenacity. Fend off any attempt 
to have them compromised. We must protect our qualities. And like the forefathers, all of us have one quality in which we truly shine. And in that quality, that's where we're going to be tested more than any other area. And we have to protect that quality the way we protect the pupils of our eyes. Our greatest potential is going to coincide with the area in which we are tested more than any other area. Our sages tell us, the greater a person is, the stronger and more robust and fearsome is their Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is, is our foruncle. And we have to recognize that specifically in the areas that we are strongest and we have our most potential and where we're destined to really achieve our greatness, that's where we're going to be tested more than any of the area. And we have to say, I want to be like the forefathers. What does it mean to be like the forefathers? It means to realize that you're going to be tested in that area. And you have to know that to the degree that you fend off the challenges, that we fend off the challenges of our respective foruncle, the people, the situations, the circumstances that are trying to knock us off our course and push us away from our qualities, to the degree that we follow the ways of our forefathers, we too will become the forefathers of our spiritual legacy and dynasty. Let's get to this week's question. We like at the Parsha Podcast to get to get smarter. Every week try to get 1% smarter. But how do you get smarter? You have to raise your IQs. You have to have one idea, and that's the I, and one question, and that's the Q. And we get smarter about the Parsha, but we also get smarter about uh, other areas of life. The only thing that makes a person actually smarter, you can listen to music, you could do Sudoku, you could do a lot of things, brain stimulation, watch animations that try to trigger parts of your brain, chess problems, try to work on riddles, submit your application for Mensa. The one thing that actually works is Torah. So we're trying to raise our IQ, our partial IQ, but also our general IQ. That's what we're doing here in the Parsha Podcast. Here's the question. When Jacob sends a contingency, a contingent or a contingency? I think it's a contingent. I probably should edit this out of the podcast and just make believe like I'm so suave and don't make any mistakes. I'll leave it in because I know it's only the, the real diehards that are still listening and you guys will forgive me. When Jacob sends a contingent, to meet Esav, he conveys a message to Esav, and he omits something. This is chapter 32, verse 6. He tells Esav, I have a an ox, lots of oxen. I have a donkey, lots of donkey, lots of donkeys, and sheep, and servants, and maidservants. And now I want to find favor in the eyes of my master. Jacob omits something. He omits camels. Last week, after Jacob became very wealthy, we read how he acquired camels. This is the final verse of chapter 30. 
In our parasha, just a few verses later, when he splits the camp, preparing for the worst-case scenario, he divides the camp, and the verse talks about camels. Yet, when he sends a message to Esav, he omits any mention of, of camels. He talks about the oxen, and then the donkeys, and the sheep. Why does he omit the camels? Now, I love this question, because such a question can only be the result of a real careful reading of the Torah. Such a subtle nuance. You can read this verse a hundred times and miss it every single time. And even if we did notice it, it wouldn't immediately trigger our curiosity. It wouldn't seem to be so significant the first time we read it. But of course, there's nothing insignificant in the Torah. And if there is a type of animal that is missing, it kind of raises the question, why does Jacob omit mentions of camels? So when I heard this question, I thought of an answer of my own. We know when Jacob sold the birthright to Esav, Esav asked that the food be poured down his throat. And Rashi tells us like a camel. So maybe Jacob didn't want to bring up that sore subject at a time where he was worried about what Esav was going to do to him. So he says, you know, I'll just skip that. I'm not going to mention the camel. I don't want to invoke in any way. I don't want to trigger Esav by talking about the sale of the birthright. That's the thought that I had. But the Meshech Chachma, one of the great commentators on the Torah, he says something amazing. He says that the camel is one of the few animals that has one of the kosher signs, but not the other. So, of course, to be kosher, an animal must chew its cud and have split hooves. Now, most animals have either both or none. The camel is unique in that it does, in fact, chew its cud, but it does not have split hooves. Now, for all practical purposes, it just means that it's completely not kosher. It's not half kosher. It's completely not kosher because you need both. If you don't have both then you have effectively nothing. But the camel represents a mixture of good and bad. Now we know the sin of Adam, it was when he ate from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And what his sin did to humanity on a physiological level was that he caused a mixture of good and bad. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they made tremendous strides in reversing the sin of Adam. And therefore, suggests the Meshachachma, part of the message of Jacob is that I don't have any camels. Yes, I may have a literal camel, but I have done such tremendous efforts in separating, in clarifying the good from the bad, that on a philosophical level, there are no camels in my camp. Yes, I have an ox. Ox, it's got both signs of being kosher. And you know what? I have a donkey as well. And a donkey is totally not kosher by any standard. It's got none of the signs. That 
represents separation. Camels, it's a mixture? That does not exist over here. And he adds, the Meshachach Madas, that Rebecca, when she traveled back with Eliezer, the Torah tells us that she traveled on a camel. And that is symbolic. That is hinting to us that she is destined to bear one kosher and one not kosher. She's a mixture of good and bad. She's going to have both Jacob and Asaph. The reason why I love this is because it's such a subtlety. You have to read the Torah so carefully to pick up such a nuance and to use it to develop into such a powerful insight. Absolutely amazing. I thank you for listening and joining us this week in the Parsha Podcast. As I mentioned, it's a fun and unusual episode because we invented a word. The word is not forefather, but for uncle. And what it means, it's a, just a fun episode, but it's also an unusual one. So it's appropriate for me to ask this unusual request. Send me an audio and a video, audio or a video of how the podcast specifically have impacted you. Send us some testimonials. My email address is rabbitjump.com. You can send it via WhatsApp, via text, via email. You could put it on a tape recorder and mail it to the Torch Center. You could put it on an SD card and put it in the snail mail. You could... Convey to us however you want to convey it to us. Do me a favor, send me one of those. Have an incredible rest of your day. Have an exquisite rest of your week. And have the best Shabbos of your life. Please, God, upcoming, send me an email with your testimonials and your questions, comments, and feedback. RabbiWallVigman.com Until next week, take care. Stay safe. Stay strong. Please, God, we will gather together again with the help of the Almighty in good health and in great spirits. Please, God, next week.